Well, my name's Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here of the city. I want to welcome you here. I uh, want to welcome those of you watching online or at one of our locations. Hope City guys, we're, we're pumped you're joining us right now as well. And if you heard Mark talking about Easter coming and you were like confused, thinking it's March, like isn't Easter forever away? Well, it's five weeks away. Easter's five weeks away. And on Easter, okay, big announcement, on Easter, uh, we are going to three services. We're going to have a nine o'clock service, 1015 and 1130, nine, 1015, 1130. Those will be on our new service time starting that day. So we'll keep that nine o'clock service uh, for the rest of the spring into the summer uh, as long as we need it. Chances are uh, with the summer crowds, my guess is we'll drop the nine for a short period and bring it back in the fall. But 1015 and 1130 will stay uh, those times starting Easter and they will remain through the summer for sure. We'll just kind of gauge the crowds and see what to do about the nine. But starting Easter, nine, 1015, 1130. So be making plans for uh, people that you can bring and join us between now and then on Easter. We're starting an, a, a series for Easter that will start the week after spring break and it will go for three weeks. It's called Side Jesus. And so if you're familiar with the phrase side hustle or even side chick, uh, maybe uh, that kind of lets you see maybe what the series is going to be about, that we're going to be talking about uh, Jesus being the Lord of our life and why and radically or reorienting our lives around Jesus, his mission and uh, his life, his teachings. And so it's going to be a great series. We'll start at the week after uh, spring break and it will culminate. We'll end that series on Easter, talking about Jesus is Lord and why Jesus is God in the flesh. So definitely uh, make, you're going to make plans for that. Uh, kind of know that for your schedule starting Easter 9, 10, 15, 11, 30. And as we make this jump and as we kind of take this step as a church to go to three services, uh, this, this is a big step and it requires more people uh, getting involved in contributing to their church, not just consuming uh, but contributing. The church is a people that we belong to. It's not a place we go to. It's a people we belong to. It's a family. And uh, when we take a next step as a family to reach more people, it requires more people in the family stepping up and doing whatever it takes to help us reach more people. And so to do that, uh, one of the phrases I want to get kind of get in our mantra and, and in our minds is attend one, serve one. Attend one, serve one. And so if you're coming, uh, you attend one and then serve one means you, you serve an hour uh, here at the church. That could be in first impressions or kids ministry in particular is where we're going to need a lot of help. Uh, that could be on our media teams. Uh, it could be anywhere, uh, but, but attend one and serve one. And so that's weekly. And so that means if it's possible for you and you serve every other week or once every few weeks right now, uh, it would mean stepping up and, and starting to serve even more often, like every week if it was possible, and attending one and serving one. And so I just want to put that out for you uh, to be praying and let's prepare our hearts uh, for this and taking this next step so that we can reach more people uh, with the good news about Jesus. Well, this past week, uh, my daughter Nixon came to me and asked me to play Barbies. Now I'm a guy. I grew up playing sports. I've had two sons that play sports. Uh, that's what I'm used to. Okay. That's a, that's the norm for me. That's what I'm comfortable with. Right. 
So when Nixon comes to me and asks me to play Barbies, uh, that's not in my wheelhouse, right? I mean, but I'm a girl dad, and so I've had to learn to do some of these things, and, and playing with Barbies is one of them. And so what makes this even weirder, though, is none of her Barbies had clothes on. And so she's asking me to play with a naked Barbie. And I'm just like, this is weird. All right. This is uncomfortable. And she's like, I want you to put the dresses on the Barbies. And I'm like, what? Like, how do you dress? I mean, what do you mean dress a Barbie? And so she's giving me these dresses and I'm putting, I'm trying to put these dresses on the Barbie. But here's the thing. I mean, my fingers are too big to be putting these little tiny dresses on these little tiny Barbies. This takes small fingers that are like nimble and careful, right? I'm, I'm fumbling around. I'm trying to get these dresses on these Barbies and it's impossible to get those sleeves of the dress like over their fingers and down their arms. Like their fingers are stuck. They're pointy. They don't move. And so I'm like crushing their fingers and bending them in and all this kind of stuff to get this sleeve down the dress. And when I'm doing it, I'm like, Nixon, I can't do this. And she's like trying to encourage, no, you got this. I'm like, no, 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 I can't do this. I surrender, right? That's what you say when you can't do something. When you realize you can't do something, you say, I surrender. I can't do this. And did you know that's what it takes to have a relationship with God? That's what it takes to follow Jesus like total and complete surrender. Not, not a partial surrender, a waving of the white flag, total and complete surrender. I can't do this. God, I need you. I need you to come and help me. And see, here's the great news. God wants to walk with you. He wants to be with you. And we see that all throughout the scripture in the old covenant, we see God wanting to be with his people through things like the tabernacle and the temple where it said God's dwelling is now among his people so that God could be with his people in Jesus. John one tells us that the word became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it was said that he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus was about to leave this earth, he told his disciples, he warned them ahead of time. Hey, I'm about to go. I'm going to go to the father. I'm going back to heaven. They're upset. They're troubled. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. It's better if I go because the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is going to come and fill you and indwell you. And you will be the temple of the living God. And my spirit will live inside of you. And this is the new covenant. If you're a follower of Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of the living God. God's presence lives inside of you and moves you from the inside out to worship God and love God and obey God and serve God. And Jesus said, it's better if I go because the Holy Spirit, who is God, will come and fill you and be with you. Now, whether you're interpreting this in Greek in the New Testament or in Hebrew in the Old Testament, this idea of God being with you, being with his people and his desire to be with you is the picture of him walking with you hand in hand, holding your hand, walking side by side with you in this life and through this life. That's what God does through the Holy Spirit. Even to this day, he walks with you hand in hand. But here's the thing. When you walk with God, Side by side, you're holding his right hand. You see, in the scripture, the scripture talks about the righteous right hand of God. And that it's his right hand that represents his power, his provision, his protection, his plan, his sovereign providence. And so to walk with God holding his right hand, it means you reaching out with your left. You see, you don't shake hands with God like an equal. You hold his hand, his right hand with your left hand. And your left hand symbolizes humility, need, surrender. 
It's someone helping you up when you've fallen and you taking their right hand with your left hand. This is not a greeting, shaking hands when you walk hand in hand with God. No, 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 quite the opposite. This is you surrendering to someone who is greater and more powerful than you are. And so you surrender with your left hand and you hold his right hand and you walk with God. Let, let me ask you a question. Though. What keeps us from doing that? What keeps us from surrendering our left hand to the righteous right hand of God? What keeps us from doing that? Well, it's pride, right? It's pride that keeps us from surrendering our left hand to God's right hand. It's us thinking we know what's best. My way is best. I know what's best, God. And so I'm going to do things my way. That's what keeps us from surrendering to God. It's control. It's us thinking that we can control ourselves and people and events and circumstances of our lives. Well, today I want to talk to you about what it means and what it looks like to surrender to the righteous right hand of God who's on your left. What does that mean? What does it look like? And why you should surrender to God totally and completely to the one on your left. So if you got your Bible, go to Genesis 22. Genesis chapter 22, and now's a great time to get out our app on your phone. The verses and points will be there for you to follow along with us and fill in the blank. And, and when you get a right answer, when you fill in the blank, it gives you a little green line and you just feel all warm and special about yourself. And you got a right answer and you can go tell your friends, I got the right answer in church today. I'm, look how spiritual I am, all right? So Genesis 22, let me set this up for you. This is the second greatest act of surrender to God's will. And it points... We'll get to later. It points to the greatest act of surrender in the scripture. So Genesis 22, the second greatest act of surrender to God's will. Now, God has been telling Abraham, the central character in this story. God has been telling Abraham since Genesis chapter 12 that he has promised him to bless him to multiply his descendants, to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, to give him some land, what would be called, become the, the promised land, and to bless not only his descendants, but all the nations, like everybody on this planet who's ever existed, like God is going to bless all people, all nations through you is what God has promised Abraham. And he tells him that in Genesis 12. He repeats it again in Genesis 15 and reminds Abraham of the promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to multiply your descendants. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky, which by the way, at this point in time, Abraham and Isaac are very old. She has not had kids. She is barren. And God's making him this promise, this miraculous promise that you're going to have all these descendants and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. Chapter 17, God says, you're going to name this son of this promise, Isaac. That's going to be his name. Like the kid, the son, I'm going to start all of this with through you and Sarah, Abraham, you're going to name him Isaac. Genesis 21, they have the son, they name him Isaac. And God reminds Abraham again in Genesis 21, it's through him like your son Isaac that's now living, that I promised you and I gave you, it's through Isaac. It's, just like, it's like God reminding him over and over and over again, setting us up and setting Abraham up for Genesis 22. It's through Isaac, God says in Genesis 21, that this promise is going to be fulfilled. Descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. It's through Isaac, God says. Now, Genesis 22, <laughs> a hard turn. A hard turn. 
that would cause Abraham or any of us to question the promise of God. A hard turn. Genesis 22, starting in verse one, here's where we're at. So sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Does God test people's faith? Answer, yes, he does. We see it all throughout the scripture. God tests Abraham's faith. We'll see the nature of the test and what God is testing for here in a second. But God does test people's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac. So the, the son that you've promised me, the, the son that you said, he will be the one through which the promise is fulfilled. Like that son, take that son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love so much and go to the land of Moriah, go and sacrifice him. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. God tests Abraham's faith and he will test yours and it will oftentimes be very similar. You might think, what, God's going to tell me to go and sacrifice my kids? No, 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 no. It will be similar though. It will be similar in that God often tests our love for created things, for the blessings. He's testing to see whether we love the created things, the blessings, or we love creator God, the blessor. Do we love the gifts more than the giver? Or do we love the giver more than the gifts? You see, God will not tempt your flesh. The Bible makes that clear. James, the brother of Jesus, says that in James chapter 1. God does not tempt you. But he will test your heart. And God wants our hearts. He wants Abraham's heart. And oftentimes that test of our hearts will come through suffering. We see it all throughout the scripture. Job is a perfect example where God allowed Job to go through intense suffering. And Job even ascribes his suffering to the will of God. After everything that Job has been through, Job says this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord takes away. And so Job recognizes that his suffering at minimum has been allowed by God, at most has been the will of God. And here's what Job says, a result of his suffering. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but I love the giver more than the gifts. I love the creator more than I love the created things. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How would Abraham respond to his testing? How does he respond? Well, let's see how he responds to the time of testing. So let's keep going. Verse three, the next morning, Abraham got up early. I think if you were high and just heard God tell us to go and sacrifice our kid, we might be sleeping in a little bit. Like maybe God will sleep on it. Maybe he'll get a good night's rest and he'll think differently in the morning, right? Maybe he'll change his mind if I just kind of keep sleeping in and kind of keep hitting the snooze button. Like maybe you did this morning, losing an hour of sleep. I just hit the snooze button. Snooze, snooze, snooze. Maybe God will change his mind. No, no, that's not what, that's not what Abraham did. 
he got up early the next morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants along with him, along with his son Isaac, and then he chopped some wood for a fire and a burnt offering and set off for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there. Let's stop just for a second. Abraham describes what's about to happen as worship. Abraham describes his love for God in his time of suffering. Abraham describes the sacrifice that he's about to make as worship to God. Abraham knows the test and he knows what I'm about to do is show God. I love him more than anything, more than life itself, more than any gift, more than any blessing. I love God, creator God, the blesser. And I'm about to go and worship him. I'm going to show God how much he means to me that even in the time of my suffering, blessed be the name of the Lord. So we're going to go worship there and then watch what Abraham says. And then we will come right back. Who's we, Abraham? You're going to sacrifice your son. Who are you talking about? Who's we? Right? Abraham, you must be confused. Like, you're, you're going to sacrifice. There's no we. It's just you coming back. You both, the we is going up the mountain, but we is not coming back down the mountain. You're going up to sacrifice your son. But Abraham says, tells his servants, they leave him. And he says, but we will come right back. So how do you pass the test? How, how do we pass the test of our faith? Let's, let's look at how Abraham passed his test. Number one, Abraham passed the test with immediate obedience. Immediate obedience. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, took his two servants, loaded up the wood, and headed out for where God told him to go. Immediate obedience. Secondly, Abraham responds with complete trust. Complete trust. Abraham says, we will come back. Abraham is talking about himself and his son, Isaac. We are coming back. You see, Abraham has complete belief that Isaac is coming back with him in spite of what God has asked him to do. Because he's remembering Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 21. It's through Isaac that I'm going to bless you. And so in the time of his suffering, in the time of the greatest sacrifice, in the face of the greatest sacrifice, Abraham remembers the promise and believes that God can do anything. Nothing is too hard for God. God has already brought the dead back to life when God gave them a son. They had no kids. There was no life. There was no hope. And God has already provided a son and life where there was no son and there was no life. God has provided hope where there was no hope. Abraham's already seen God do it and he believes God can do it again. And so he trusts the promise. And he says, we will come back. Complete trust. Hebrews chapter 11 says this about Abraham. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. That's how much trust Abraham had in his God. 
That's how much he believed the promises of God. He believed that his son would be raised to life because God has already told him over and over and over. It's through Isaac. It's through Isaac. It's through Isaac that I'm going to bless you and that you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. So verse six, so Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders. Can you imagine? Moms, dads, placing the wood that your child's about to be sacrificed on their shoulders for them to carry it up the mountain. So the wood, the burnt offering was on Isaac's shoulders while he himself, Abraham carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep? Where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Watch Abraham's response. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together with Isaac carrying the wood that the sacrifice would be made on his shoulders to the place where the sacrifice would be made. Isaac asked, where's the lamb that's going to be sacrificed? And Abe responds with complete trust. With complete trust that God will provide the sacrificial lamb. Complete trust. Verse nine. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes. Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for watch this, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me, even your son, your only son. You have not withheld the gifts and the blessing. You have shown that you love the giver. You love the blesser. You love the creator more than you love the created things, more than you love the blessing, more than you love the gift. You have passed the test. You have not withheld from me your only son. And so Abraham's surrender leads to God's provision of a substitute. Abraham's surrender leads to God's provision of a substitute. And so watch this. The third way you pass the test is with total surrender. Total and complete surrender to the plan of God, to the provision of God, to the protection of God, to God's sovereign providence, total surrender. And here's what the test shows. The test shows that God did not desire Isaac's death. He desired Abraham's life. God wanted Abraham's heart. He wanted his love to be for the giver and not for the gifts. So Abraham surrenders the what and the when for who? If you're here last week, that probably makes a little bit more sense to you. If you weren't here last week, go online, check out our, our app and, and you can catch up. But Abraham surrenders the what and the when for who? For God himself. 
He surrenders the blessings and when the blessings are going to occur for God himself. Verse 13, then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So the sacrifice is killed and put on the offering in the place of his son, Isaac. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord's will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. On the mountain of the Lord, it'll be provided. Abraham's total and complete surrender leads to God's provision of a substitute. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have not, because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. So watch this blessing from God is found in surrendering to God. Blessing from God. You want the blessing of God in your life? Blessing from God is found in surrendering, total and complete surrender to God. The most blessed are the most surrendered. It's why my time in Southern Mexico and Chiapas, I've spent time with people that have lost everything, homes, Land, clothing, shelter, food, everything. They've been forced from their homes because of their love for Jesus. And when you talk with them, they have smiles on their faces and they say, brother, I am blessed. You've lost everything. I'm blessed. They are totally surrendered to Jesus. The most blessed are the most surrendered. Blessing from God is found in surrendering to God. Blessing comes from surrendering. Abraham's descendants that come from Isaac are literally saved by a sacrifice that died in Isaac's place. Like the promise that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky is made possible by a sacrifice that would die in their place. You see, all of this points to and is a picture of the greatest act of surrender we find in the scripture. Jesus, who totally surrendered himself to the will of God to crush him. Do you know Isaiah 53 says it was the Lord's will to crush him? Speaking of the Messiah, it was God's will to crush his son. Peter preaching in Acts chapter two says to the Jews and the Romans, he said, listen, you handed him over to be crucified. And so you're responsible. But Peter says in Acts two, but it was the Lord's sovereign will to kill and crush his son. It was the Lord's will. And Jesus totally surrendered himself to the father's will to be the sacrifice. John the Baptist called Jesus the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who would die in our place for our sin. 
And Jesus totally surrendered himself to the plan of God, even though it meant to crush him. You see, Jesus knew that if he didn't surrender himself to the will and to the plan of God to be crushed by his father, God's wrath for sin being poured out on him in our place, that if he did not surrender himself to the will of his father, then God would have to pour out his wrath on us and crush us for eternity in hell for our sin. You see, you break man's law, you pay man's fine. You break God's law, you pay God's fine for sin. And the scripture is clear that God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell where you are crushed by the wrath of God for all eternity. Jesus said himself that hell is a place where the fire and the torment never run out. It's God's wrath for sin crushing you for all of eternity. But Jesus surrendered himself to the will of God to be the lamb of God who would die in our place for our sin. And so like Isaac, the only son of God, watch this, carried the wood of the cross on his shoulders up the mountain that he, our provided lamb of God, would be sacrificed on. And God the father went through with the same sacrifice that he stopped Abraham from doing himself. You know, anytime I read this story, especially with my kids, they, they don't like it. In fact, when they were younger, they would cry and say, we don't want to read this story. I don't, we don't want to hear it. And maybe you felt the same way. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You haven't been too sure what to think about this whole church thing, this whole Jesus thing. Maybe one, this passage is one of those reasons. How could God, how awful, how terrible is this God that he would ask for Abraham to sacrifice his son? And my, my temptation when I've read the story with my kids, because they don't want to hear it, is to lighten it. It's to not make it so dark, or so difficult. That's the temptation. But one of those times I, I was feeling like I needed to, you know, make it lighter and, and, and less painful. I felt like God saying, no, 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 don't do that. Don't do that even for them. They need to feel this pain. They need to wrestle with this pain. You need to feel this pain. You need to wrestle with this pain in this story, with the tension in this story. We all do. And God said, the reason they need to deal with it, the reason they need to wrestle with it is because what I stopped Abraham from doing, I went through with. It's my son, my only son, whom I love, carried the wood on his shoulders up the mountain to the place he would be sacrificed, where he would die as a sacrificial lamb in your place for your sin, paying your fine for sin. But here's the other thing we learned about God. You see, Genesis 22, when you read it, if you read it in context and you study it and you learn more about the time that this was written, the culture of the day that this took place, here's what you would find. It's not immediately present in the text, but in the culture of this day and this time, pagan religions from the Canaanites and, and, and many others regularly sacrificed their children to their false gods. They regularly did this. And they did it because they thought it, it brought them fertility for more kids. They did it because they, they thought it would bring them a good harvest. They, they did it because they, they thought maybe then the gods would bless them and not curse them. 
And so regularly, idol worshipers, pagans, would sacrifice their kids to their false gods, to their idols, who are not gods at all. So this request to Abraham would not have been foreign to him. This was not unheard of. Difficult, no doubt, but not foreign to Abraham. This wasn't some crazy thought or idea because, again, all the cultures at this time would sacrifice kids to their pagan gods. So in the stopping of Abraham, God shows himself as completely different from the false gods of his day. God sets this up on purpose to show Abraham and all of his descendants and all of the world, I am not a God like your false gods who are not gods at all, who are idols. That's not who I am. I am a God, and Genesis 22 screams that the one true living God desires life for his creation, not death. Desires to bless his creation, not curse them. This God is deserving and worthy of our lives, our worship, and our total surrender. This God wants our daughters and sons to be saved from death and to live so much so that he offered his one and only son whom he loves to die in our place for our sin. God has surrendered his son, Jesus. Jesus himself surrendered and offered up himself, offered up himself as the lamb of God who would die in our place for our sin. He went first. And so his surrender begs our surrender. His surrender begs our surrender. This God can be trusted with our total surrender and life itself is actually found in this total surrender. So watch this. God will do more with your surrender than you can do with your control. God will always do more with your surrender than you can do with your control. And here's why. Control is a mirage. I said it last week. I'll say it again this week. Control is a mirage. Something happens to you you don't like. You feel like you've lost control. But the truth is, you never had to control to begin with. Control is a lie. It's a mirage. And so my challenge for you today is this, it's to surrender your left hand to the righteous right hand of God, to the one on your left, because his righteous right hand represents his power, his provision, his protection, his plan, and his providence. And this, you don't always have the power and you don't have the power to control his right hand. You don't have the power to control his plan his protection, his provision, his providence. You can't control God's right hand, but you always have the power to surrender your left hand. You always have the power to surrender your left hand to the righteous right hand of God. And let's not forget his righteous right hand is nail scarred. Even to this day, and one day when you're in heaven and when you see Jesus, you will see his righteous right hand and it will be nail scarred saying, I love you and begging your surrender even now. You see, you can totally surrender your left hand because his right hand has a nail wound in it where he died in your place for your sin, where he went first and surrendered himself for you. And so you can surrender your left hand to his 
righteous right hand. It's nail scarred and it's begging our surrender. It's begging you to surrender your dreams for God's destiny, your plans for God's purpose, your control for God's calling, your addiction for God's affection, your pride for God's power, provision, protection, plan, and providence. And when you don't understand the plan, you can know your perfect heavenly father has a purpose. See, you always have the power to surrender, but there's no such thing as partial surrender. There's no such thing as a partial surrender. To follow Jesus, to walk with God requires a waving of the white flag, a total and complete surrender. Jesus said this, if you cling to your life, you're gonna lose it. But if you surrender your life for my sake, you will find life, like real life. If you'll surrender your life for my sake, you will find it. Peter said this in 1 Peter 5 and 6, humble yourselves therefore. In other words, surrender yourself to God's mighty hand, his righteous right hand, that he may lift you up in due time. So when you surrender yourself to God, a total and complete surrender, you find life and God raises you up and gives you new life. So Genesis 22 is telling us this, that eternal victory is found in total surrender. An eternal victory is found in total surrender. Hebrews 11 again, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Abraham reasoned that if I totally and completely surrender in this moment, eternal victory awaits. If I lose my life for my sake or for his sake, I will find it. But the next verse in Hebrews 11 says this, Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, he did receive his son back from the dead. And listen, so did God. God received his son back from the dead. The sacrificial lamb that died in your place for your sin, that paid the fine for your sin on the cross, God received his son back from the dead again when three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, proving that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Lord of your life. He proved it when he rose three days later. God received his son back from the dead again. And Genesis 22 is calling for you to give your life to Jesus because when you give your life to him, you will be raised from the dead as well. Jesus said this, I'm the resurrection and the life. We saw this last week. Whoever believes in me, even though they die, will live. Ephesians 2 says this, you're dead in your sin, you're objects of the wrath of God, but when you give your life to Jesus, you are raised to life and seated in the heavenly realm, just like Jesus was raised to life and then now sits with the Father in heaven. When you give your life to Jesus, when you totally surrender your life to Jesus, you receive an eternal victory. And even though you die one day, Jesus said, you will live forever. Eternal victory is found in total 
surrender. And some of you need to give your life to Jesus today. Maybe you've been kind of been playing around. You've been doing the church thing. You've been coming thinking maybe that'll somehow make you right with God. If, if you just kind of come and, and show up every week or even every once in a while, listen, being a good person, your attendance does not make you right with God. Ephesians two says this salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. Good people don't go to heaven. Church attenders do not go to heaven. You can play the church game and show up and still do everything your own way. That's not total and complete surrender. That's just attending an event once a week. You're not making yourself right with God by being here right now. You're not. The only way you can be made right with God, forgiven of your sin, go to heaven when you die, is surrendering your life to Jesus. It's giving your life to him. And a total and complete surrender is a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus, his life, his mission, and his teachings. It's not a coming once a week and paying lip service. It's a following Jesus with total and complete surrender with a radical reorientation of your life around Jesus. Some of you, listen, you're playing a bad, bad, dangerous game because you think that by coming here once a week, you're somehow making yourself right with God and you're not. Jesus said it one day, there's going to be people standing before me and they're going to talk about all the things they did for me and, and all the great things they did and, and how much money maybe they gave and how many times they prayed and how often they read their Bible and how many times they came to church, all these kinds of things. And Jesus said this, and my father will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I didn't know you. You didn't surrender your life to me. You didn't give your life to Jesus. You just played a religious church game. And you thought you could come and sing the songs and nod and believe some things mentally, but not actually surrender your life to me. Listen, I don't want any of you to be disappointed on that day. Paul said, you need to test yourself and see whether you're really in the faith. My hope is, man, today you would test yourself. Have I been playing a game? Have I been thinking that I could be good enough to go to heaven? Have I been thinking I could do better and try harder my way into the kingdom of God? I don't want you to be wrong on that day. I don't want you to hear depart from me, I never knew you. This is as serious as it get, folks. If you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, you're gonna be in trouble. Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you waved the white flag and said, I can't do this and given your life to Jesus? Immediate obedience to what he tells you to do, complete trust, total surrender. Eternal victory is found and total surrender. Would you pray with me? God, I pray in this moment, be a very sobering moment for every one of us in this room where we examine whether we've been playing a game, whether we've been doing the religious routine, whether we've just been giving lip service or kind of a mental assent to agreeing with certain things. God, I pray that right now you would examine our hearts and you would test us and we would realize whether or not we've ever really given our lives to Jesus before or if we've just been kind of playing a game.
we haven't really taken this serious. And God, I pray in this moment, for those of us that have made that decision, God, I pray that we would hear you saying to us right now, I'm on your left, whispering to us, I'm on your left. Take my righteous right hand, surrender your life to me, regardless of what you're going through right now, however tough it may be, surrender to me and you will experience and know what it's like to hold the righteous nailed scarred right hand of the one who went first, who surrendered himself for you. And as we close, I wanna invite you, just heads bowed, eyes closed, to listen to the words of this old hymn. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all.